Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hey, Ronnie, are you free for a webinar on Tuesday, June 6th at 12 noon Central Time? Maybe. What's the topic? Creative Compliance Communications in Conservative Cultures. Hashtag alliteration. Like how to make compliance more entertaining, engaging, and relevant for employees, and how to do it in a work environment that's traditionally conservative? Yeah. Cool. Who's speaking? You are. Who am I? You're the founder of Learnings and Entertainments, and you used to head up a comedic compliance communications business with the Second City. Okay, great. I'd listen to me. Great. Join Ronnie and me to discuss techniques for creatively communicating compliance in conservative cultures. Tuesday, June 6th at 12 noon Central Time. You can sign up by texting the word communicating, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-N-G, to 44222 on your cell phone. That's communicating to 44222 on your cell phone. This time I want to talk about some key takeaways from the new guidance from the Department of Justice on third-party management. The topic of third-party due diligence is obviously in third-party management has been around for a long time. And you notice I just automatically said the word due diligence because I think that's oftentimes what we think about. When I was first dissecting the new guidance about a month ago on some of the earlier podcasts and I got to the section about third-party management, I kind of focused on organizations that perhaps in the past haven't really thought about their risks around third parties, because I think that's a, an area ripe for, for concern if you have a compliance program that in the past hasn't really taken, in, taken these risks into consideration. But what I want to focus on today are those organizations that do focus on third parties. And, and primarily, as my slip of my tongue uh, gave away, we think very, very frequently about due diligence. It's not always the start and the end of the third party compliance management process, but it certainly probably takes up the most oxygen. If you go to any compliance event and you lo- or you pick up a compliance magazine or publication, there are several advertisements, there are several providers out there that are happy to provide third-party due diligence services. And these are necessary things. But what's very interesting is I want you, if you have a copy of the new guidance from the Department of Justice, if you open it up to page seven, section 10, which is third-party management, and review the four topic headings uh, and the questions that are asked within those topic headings, the term due diligence is mentioned only in passing in the very last section as sort of a throwaway saying were red flags identified in the due diligence of third parties involved in the misconduct. So it's not even well described. Now, does that mean that the Department of Justice is not interested in your in an organization having a robust due diligence process for its third parties? Of course not. But I think it's telling that they've chosen the limited amount of space, the four paragraphs that they have here to discuss what's important with third-party management, and they don't bother to discuss due diligence. Um, part of that might be because there's a understanding from Wei Chen and the other experts at the fraud section that this is an area that is well covered by many organizations that have a mature program. But also, I think that uh, they really want to draw attention to some other issues, uh, some broader issues, and some, some issues that maybe have been overlooked in the past. 
And I think there are three things that I get from this that I'd like to share with you. And there's more, but there are three things in particular. The first is, if you listen to some of my recent podcasts, one of the things that I think is throughout this uh, new guidance is this notion of involving the larger organization, involving the team. And that's certainly here too. The guidance talks, again, throughout the entire guidance talks about involving many parties within the organization in the process. But specifically in this section, there's a focus on how the third-party management process has been, quote-unquote, integrated into procurement and vendor management processes. Well, that's naturally going to bring in the business operations, people who are responsible for vendor management or procurement. I think that's something that many organizations already have done with regard to third-party management, but it's here in black and white in this section, and I think it's worth noting. They also note that uh, it's important for organizations to train the quote-unquote relationship managers about what the compliance risks for these third parties are and how to manage those risks. So clearly involving a business partner or partners in the process is contemplated by this new guidance. So the one thing that I take away from this, and again, throughout the, the guidance, is this notion that you need to be showing how your processes, not just for third-party management, but for compliance generally, are integrated into the general operations of the organization. I think that's very important. The second thing, theme that I get from this is sort of this notion of a holistic process, if you will. The term that is used in this document is management of relationships. And so, again, to go back to my first point about due diligence being sort of our natural fallback point, and I promise I didn't do that on purpose. I said due diligence just kind of automatically, like many of us do. The notion that the management of the relationship is much broader, longer, more all-encompassing than just a review due diligence process at the beginning. And I don't say just because I know those can be very intensive, but this notion of an ongoing relationship management process, I think needs to be baked in to all of your processes and uh, your methodology and your systems as you are moving forward. You need to show that there's, there's ongoing care and feeding of these relationships, that those processes obviously involve business operations folks, and including the quote-unquote relationship managers. So this ongoing notion of having an ongoing process that's not a, a due diligence process or a due diligence top-heavy process, I think, is important to show that you're thinking about these concepts. One of the things that's mentioned that kind of falls into this too is what's the business rationale and have you analyzed what's going on with the business of the organization? Have you analyzed the third party's compliance risks, their incentive models? So it's a much more involved, and again, to use maybe a bit of a cliched term, a holistic process than perhaps a due diligence process would be. The other thing too that, that can happen with due diligence process, uh, with a due diligence heavy process is you get this really strong picture, but it's a, it's a still picture. It's not a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a photograph in time of where that third party might have been. So you, there are all kinds of things that can happen. Ownership can change. That third party, particularly a larger third party might enter a fundamentally different business or, or acquire another business or be acquired. There's just so many things that can happen in the lifespan of an organization that you're doing business with. This, this notion of sort of an ongoing management of that relationship involving business operations people is, is very important. So this, again, holistic approach, I think, is the second 
kind of broad theme that I get out of this. And then the last piece, which is an important one, and I have a story about this, is uh, the last section of the third-party management discussion in this document talks about real actions and consequences. So once a red flag came up or something has happened, then what does the organization do to resolve it? Now, I know that might seem rather obvious and straightforward, but the example that I have actually goes back to even before I was thinking about compliance all that much in the early 2000s when I was in private practice in Houston, we were involved in a, a case with a regulator and the regulator was asking questions about a supplier that our client had engaged and they were looking at the contract, the subcontract, the document that involved the organization and our client. And they noted that there were audit rights that were reserved by our client. And of course, the question, the obvious question that came up was, uh, you know, you've been doing business with this organization for X number of years. Uh, You're doing business in a kind of risky environment, shall we say, and in a risky, risky industry where it's sort of understood that sometimes bribes get paid. How often and how frequently have you audited this partner that you've been doing business with, significant business with for many years? Well, I think I probably made it clear what the answer was. The answer was a shrug of the shoulders. Well, we, you know, we've never invoked those rights. It seems like an obvious thing, but I know that it happens where we spend a lot of time sort of front loading our process. Again, the due diligence process can be very intensive. And we have a lot of requirements for those third parties in that sort of that honeymoon period, including having things like audit rights written into strong preference for audit audit rights written into the contracts. Well, what's the follow up? What happens? Whether there's, again, a red flag or, or actual misconduct or just broadly speaking, as it's couched in in the guidance compliance issues. I mean that could that's could bring in a broad variety of things that really don't uh, necessarily rise to the level of misconduct or even materiality. So I, I think that we have to you have to have a process again going back to the second point a holistic process an all encompassing you know management process but you also have to take action. There have to be, quote unquote, real actions. That's the terminology that the department's using, real actions. So they're going to be looking at what you've done in the past and what you've done with regard to these relationships. And they're going to be judging it against this concept of, quote unquote, real actions and consequences. So you need to think long and hard about how you handle these relationships and what is going to constitute a scenario where, for instance, you invoke your audit rights or you require more information and more data from your uh, third parties, or where you conduct site visits, where you either engage with them to do training or or ensure that you have a, a significant comfort level and review of the training that they're doing. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot more involvement here, both uh, on the ongoing and the ongoing process, but also getting involved and taking action. You know, taking action is more than asking for answers from from the uh, third party. It's it's getting involved in doing audits. It's boots on the ground. It's terminating a third party when they don't cooperate or or having some other consequences. It's a much more intensive and active role 
than I think many organizations currently engage in with third parties. Now, obviously, you can't do this with everybody. The department understands and has stated over and over that all of this is within the context of a risk-based approach. But there are going to be some parties that present the highest risk. The amount of business that you do with them, the criticality of the business to your operation, the location and type of business that's, that's, that's happening. You know, all these factors that, that either increase or decrease the likelihood of risk for not just anti-corruption, but all third party risks. That's the other thing too to keep in mind behind all of this. This is not just about bribery. It's about all third party risks. So you're not going to do this with everyone. But you need to have a process in place and you need to be taking real action with a percentage of your third parties. And that might mean, you know, having some criteria for irregular audits, even if there isn't, you know, misconduct or something of a material nature that's been uncovered, but just, you know, keeping the audit process alive so that you can show that you've taken it seriously and you take real actions. I think underpinning all of these points that are made in, in the guidance and, and the three points that I've decided to tease out today. And again, these aren't the only pieces of, of information you can get from, from the guidance on third parties. It's just the three that occur to me uh, to be important and sometimes overlooked. But what underpins all of this is, is a much more proactive approach. It's a risk-based approach, but it's a proactive approach to how you address these relationships. And it's just being more thoughtful be quite honest, then perhaps you don't want to rely totally on systems. You don't want to rely totally on a due diligence process that doesn't take into account ongoing care and feeding and and monitoring the relationship as it goes on. You don't want to not uh, have a process where on the back end, you're auditing, reviewing, considering what's going on and the necessity of, of these businesses. That's another one. You know, why are we using these third, third parties in, in the first place? Part and parcel of this process is going to be perhaps uh, working with the procurement and vendor management to determine, you know, whether, whether these relationships should be considered to be sunset. You know, there's a lot of different moving pieces that could go into this, but I think those three kind of themes were the ones that jump out at me the most as as ones that perhaps aren't always considered. The upshot this time is, is if you want a defendable third-party management process, you need to think about team, have a holistic approach, and consider real actions and real consequences. Today, we have three questions with Tedrick Hausch. Tedrick is the chair of the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group at Lathrop Engage at Kansas City. Tedrick's work includes data privacy, website terms of service, data security, and data breach issues. He assists clients with the technological, logistical, and legal issues arising from the loss or disposal of personally identifiable information and personal health information, two terms that many of you are intimately familiar with. And he has also been certified by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And Tedrick is a certified information privacy professional in the United States. Tedrick is a frequent presenter on data privacy and security, social media, and employment law in the workplace. Welcome, Tedrick. Hi, Eric. Great to be with you. Tedrick, can you tell us how you ended up in the legal compliance field and more particularly, specifically, data security and data privacy? I have been a commercial litigator, and more specifically, I was an employment litigator and have been for about 25 years. But about 12 years ago, I had a client that called me and said, 
someone has breached into our computer system and taken all the social security numbers of all of our employees. And at the time, there weren't really any data breach statutes or anything like we have today. So we had to get together and figure out what the most rational and reasonable way to deal with the loss with law enforcement and also how to notify the individuals who were involved because it just seemed right to do so. So from that experience, you fast forward a couple of years and we had someone join our firm who had been engaged in a full-blown data privacy and security practice and asked if anybody had any experience. And I had had my one, and that has simply snowballed and evolved over the last decade to doing this all the time. You, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, if you go back uh, not that many years ago, there, there, there was not, both at the state level and federally, not a whole lot of guidance uh, from the regulators. And that has obviously changed and continues to proliferate. Do you, you know, broadly speaking, do you see that trend of, of continuing to add more regulation, more oversight, uh, is that going to continue over the next few years? Uh, are we kind of at our plateau or, or is that going to continue on? Well, I'd say it's uh, somewhat administration specific. So with the 2016 election and some of the things we've heard from the FCC chairman and the ongoing changes we're going to see as the seats on the FTC, on the Federal Trade Commission are filled, uh, those are our the FTC being our major regulator in this field in the U.S., it's hard to say whether there's going to be a rise or increase in, in regulation, but one supposes not. I think you're going to find over the next few years of this administration, a lot of the risk mitigation and risk issues will be related to private litigation and litigation amongst parties who are arguing the other is liable for a particular breach or security issue. That makes sense. So even if the FTC and others retrench a little bit, uh, private litigators will will fill the gap. We may see some changes in in the case law, but so far the case law has uh, been moving towards a greater opportunity for private litigation like that. Okay. And going back again about a dozen years or so ago, if if you had one piece of advice that you're that you could have uh, provided your younger self before you came into this field, what would that one piece of advice have been? I think for me, the most valuable thing I've gained over the years has been the interactions I've had with information security managers and leaders. As I've hung out with more chief information security officers over the years, I really appreciated and supported and, and really shared their attitude about how to deal with security because in a practical sense, if you're running an information security regime at a company, you can't ask for a billion dollars to solve all problems. You have to be thoughtful and you have to be proactive and you have to spend your resources wisely and think carefully about what you're going to do to protect your company. And as an attorney, I try to employ that same thought process and try to be a tool. So working with those people, if I'd done it sooner, I'd be that much further along in terms of understanding that part of the risk analysis. I think that makes sense to me. And I think is wise advice for all attorneys that are delving into specific fields is particularly in compliance is getting the practical view from, from boots on the ground, from people who have to implement these wonderful policies and, and, and processes that the lawyers dream up. (laughs) 
And the, the last area that I, I did want to talk to you about, because I think it's important, we already mentioned a little bit about possible regulatory regimes, but what are some trends, some clear trends that you see on the horizon with regards to data security and data privacy? Well, I mentioned that for at least the short term with this particular administration, there may be less regulation per se, mm-hmm. but I think one of the trends we're looking at is the globalization of, regula- of regulation Yes, um, in that we're looking at the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, going into effect on May 25th, 2018. And many American companies don't realize that if you have even an EU resident, not just an EU citizen's data, you're going to be expected by the EU to protect it in the same way as European countries need to. And the European regulation scheme is much, much more strict and much more attuned to privacy rights. Really, privacy is a fundamental human right in Europe. It's a different concept. And you can be fined under the GDPR when it comes into effect up to 4% of your global worldwide revenue. And so the fines are enormous. How much manpower and scope will go into enforcement is yet to be seen. But in a way, I kind of liken it to in the U.S. with car emissions. California sort of set the tone and, and set uh-huh. the, the place at which you had to set your regulatory point in order to do commerce everywhere. Um, I think the EU is going to serve that same role with respect to data security coming forward. So I think that's one thing that your American attorneys are going to need to know what's going on with the EU and Asian Pacific countries and others that are adopting more stringent standards that we have because we engage in commerce with them. The other trend I see is just more of the same in terms of data. I think more and more, as you look at, at a company evaluate its assets and its worth, and you look at mergers and acquisitions, and you look at sort of all the aspects of what a, a company does, data becomes a more and more important asset. If a company's going through bankruptcy and creditors are looking at it, oftentimes they're now saying, well, if you have a huge loyalty program with a lot of customers on that list, that may well be more valuable than the facility in which your primary location rests. And if you also look at all the data we are now gathering about everybody and everything with the Internet of Things and big data, the ability to manage and access and process and really interpret and utilize all that data is going to be key to a company's success. And one of the downfalls you can run into is that if you fail to protect the information of individuals, or intellectual property that you hold or that of your clients or others, that's going to harm your reputation in sometimes a fatal way. Yeah, and uh, it, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about at the beginning, that you know maybe private action is going to, to overtake regulation because I, you could foresee, for instance, sharehold, shareholder derivative suits if they feel like the management of the organization hasn't pr- properly protected those assets. Right. And particularly if there's been uh, some sort of public event or regulatory action or consent decree after which there's been a um, drop in value of the company's shares. And let me ask you about the first point you made, which is this globalization of regulation. The one thing that you know, many people that are responsible for broader compliance programs that list, may be listening in here are, are going to be familiar with is in the anti-corruption realm. You know, the United States had a a very strong and well-known regime around anti-corruption with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act for many, many years. But over the last 
call it 10 years, maybe more specifically last five or six years, both the UK, Brazil, and other countries have employed much more stringent regimes. And the trend definitely has been to have your policy, your procedures, your training, your monitoring all revolve around the more stringent or, or heightened standards, globally speaking. Uh, do you see that same trend starting with you know, the, the incoming adoption of the, uh, of the new directive? Or, or do you more fear that companies here in the United States are going to be flat-footed? Well, I, I think that's sort of our job to, to educate and talk about it. I, I think that it will definitely be talked about as we get closer and closer to the effective date. But as to what you say, I think that you're right. That no, regardless of that particular regulation, the globe when we're in, a, in an intensely global economy and data and information and money is being transferred across uh, across nations' borders all the time necessarily there's going to be a floor that arises amongst sort of the global plurality of what we need to do to stop uh, bad actors. And, you know, thinking about what you just said with anti-corruption, if you think about the way monies get paid, or from my perspective, take ransomware, uh, Mm -hmm. where a company's data is encrypted by an outsider who then says, a bad guy, pay me money if you want your data back. Often that payment has to occur through Bitcoin, or through some other clan, you know, uh, clandestine or something where they think, the bad guys think that they won't be tracked. I don't think that's necessarily the case with Bitcoin. But with that in mind, there's a parallel between what's going on in just general anti-corruption and what's going on in the world of, of data security in that regard. Yeah. Another parallel that I'm, I'm kind of curious on, on your take on is uh, third-party uh, third risk third-party due diligence and kind of care and feeding and monitoring. I think one area, you know, third-party really took off in the last few years as a risk area, primarily around anti-corruption. But I've been saying for a long time that there are lots of other areas where third parties present significant compliance risk to organizations, including and maybe maybe even especially in the data security and data privacy area. Is that a threat that is uh, emerging with clients? Are they starting to recognize third parties and the risk that they present in, in this in this area? Well, you know, if you look at what's going on with HIPAA and high tech and protected health information in the in the world of healthcare, as well as Graham Leach Bliley and the financial regulations with respect to data that are are there with financial institutions such as banks, Mm -hmm. those entities are already required by law and regulatory authorities, and this isn't going to change anytime soon, to vet all of their vendors and make sure that the parties with whom they deal have adequate security measures in place and that there's an adequate reporting mechanism so that if something goes wrong, the vendor is required to report. So I think we're there already. It just may not have spread yet to all the other various sectors of the economy. The less, the less regulated areas. Yeah, I think that it's, there's a lot of waking up <laughs> yet to do on this topic. And that's one of the reasons I am really grateful you could spend a few minutes with us today, Tedrick. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.